0: you <smart noise>
1: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Brandon. It feels like I haven't seen or been on here in a while. We've had a few holidays, a few events happening, um, but glad to be back and glad to be speaking with you. Apologies for the um, a little bit of the background noise here, but we're in this Zoom world right now, so I'll be out. My part will be quick. I just want to quickly turn it over to. Um, I was going to say Doctor, but eh, we'll, we'll, we'll upgrade her, Doctor Mary Stover Murray, uh, who leads our community advocacy uh, plan at NMQF. And I'll turn it over to her. We're going to be talking something near and dear to what we've done at NFF for years that everybody else is sort of catching up on now. And so I'll turn it over to Mary.
0: Thank you, Brandon. So just a quick side note. When I used to work in Germany, everybody called me Frau Doctor, which was a little scary. I am a Frau. I'm not a doctor. Um, But anyway, thank you so much, we are really excited to um, be here with all of you today talking about patient and community driving research. It is something that's near and dear to us and something that uh, at NMQF we're developing a few different initiatives and models around that are that are related. Um, I'm very excited to welcome our panelists today. uh, Dr. Megan Lockwood, who's the director of lupus program and assistant professor of medicine at the Division of Rheumatology at the Department of Medicine, MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Uh, that's the longest intro we have. Um, we've got Anna Vasquez, who is a lupus patient and a DC resident uh, and has been part of our advisory board for a model we're gonna be talking about today called Clinical Trial Learning Communities. Bishop JL Carter, who's the pastor of Arc Church Baltimore, and also the co-founder of a network we're part of called the Faith Health Alliance. And then Dr. Vicki Mata McMurray, who's our VP at NMQF of clinical and social research. So I really wanna welcome all of our panelists and give a little intro of what we're talking about today. We're gonna, we have a kind of a moderated Q&A. We're gonna get right into the Q&A. It's about you know, 45 or so minutes. Um, but I'd also like to invite the audience to participate um, by putting any questions you might have um, using the q and button at the bottom of your screen or wherever you put your Zoom bar, your, uh, the, use the q button. We have some questions we've already gotten through the registration process, so we'll be getting to those as well. But we do hope this is a very um, interactive session. So our position, our vision is that communities should have a voice uh, in determining the kind of medical research and medical innovation that comes to town, right? Right now, when we, when we think about um, how clinical research is done, there's a site feasibility process that industry goes through and, and chooses sites. And some, are, some are already all participating in a lot of studies like academic research centers. But the locations, we, we don't know a lot about the different locations outside of the site that's running the study. And the vision that we've got is that communities actually should have a sense of self-determination about the medical innovation that is wanted and needed uh, here, and, um, and also how to share the benefits of research within a community. So that's what we'll be talking about today, and f has a couple of different models that we try to implement this vision with. One is called Clinical Trial Learning Communities and Dr. Lockwood, Bishop Carter and Anna have been our advisors in our demonstration um, project for this which we're just in the midst of um, developing, hoping to launch in the next quarter or so uh, in the DC area. And, um, And then we've also got an initiative called the Alliance for Representative Clinical Trials which Dr. Vicki is uh, is implementing. So that's what we'll be uh, talking about today. And as mentioned, welcome really all of your questions. So I'd like to start with, how can we learn more about the communities and the needs within a community where we wanna conduct uh, clinical research? And so Anna, I'd like to start with you if you could talk a little bit about um, your area where you live in DC and what are the medical conditions you see fellow lupus patients? Um, What do you see they're living with in terms of their disease condition, medical condition, but also other um, aspects of living in the community? Sure. So um,
2: I work in a clinic setting where there's multiple chronic
1: illnesses uh, that patients
0: are tied with hybrid. Unfortunately, you froze, Anna. <laughs> well, maybe while we get Anna back, I'll, I'll switch to Bishop Carter um, and ask sort of the same question of you. Among your constituents, what are you seeing in terms of overall medical needs and, and social needs? but then maybe specifically around lupus since that's where our demonstration is starting.
1: Sure. Um, I serve an inner city congregation in the heart of Baltimore as relates to all of the many challenges that we have here in terms of um, health inequities. And one of the problems that we are faced with, even in my own congregation, we're finding that are persons who have lupus, but many times cannot find physicians who are willing to treat them. Um, I spoke to a lady not long ago. Um, she has lupus, but the she was put on a three-month waiting list to get to a um, to a physician. And I tell you, you know, when a person is going through um, pain, when a person is going through um inner suffering and not feeling a hundred percent that's a long time to wait so you know that's that's one of the concerns that i'm that i'm faced with that i see a lot and then um the medications the medications are sometimes out of reach for persons who may be unemployed for persons who may be um caught in that vulnerable place where um they make too much money but yet they don't make enough and that's that's just some of the things that we see often okay you're on mute
0: i know Get i not to say you're on mute to me apologies to everyone i'm going to do my best um <clears throat> excuse me so anna welcome back um, uh, so i wonder if you could add on to that a little bit um you know, Bishop Carter talked about the waiting, maybe waiting for an appointment, waiting for a diagnosis that people are going through. Um, what about, what would you say the experiences of the people that you represent or that you see?
2: Same thing. Um, the lack of access to primary care is definitely a big issue. Um, patients are stuck waiting for weeks on end on an on a issue. Um, people seeking urgent care as a as a resource for primary care Um, and then even to the extent that if there's very dire you know we do have direct doctors that do take like cash payment but that is a struggle for patients that if they need immediate access um, they have to go into another way versus being able to access their primary and that is definitely has been an issue um, or using the ER as a primary care you know, for simple uh, issues like UTIs, that can be answered at your doctor's office, a comment Uh, for respiratory infection. um, It reduces, if they had more access to their primary, less ER visits and and taking up spaces for those that really need the
0: ERs. Can you talk, and, and I just want to ask you to say one more thing before we move on a little bit, but, um, in our advisory sessions, you also talked about the population of immigrants, particularly uh, people from Latin American, Latin and Central American countries, and you talked not just about legal status as a concern, but really immigration history as part of someone's decision making when they're experiencing health care. Could you help our audience understand that a little bit more? So, yeah,
2: so me, myself, being uh, the first generation to kind of grow up in the United States, um, when you look at your history, family history per se, um, there's not always a direct uh, correlation with what's going on, uh, because back home, a lot of people are not able to afford uh, medical services. So a lot of people just tend to associate the aches and pains that they're having to just regular pains and be able to treat it with, um, with let's say Tylenol here, but also in other countries, uh, access to medication is not as blocked as it is here in the United States. So if a patient needed antibiotics and they feel like they have an infection, they will go to the pharmacy and take the medication versus going to a doctor it'll be cheaper to obtain the medication versus actually getting evaluated for a doctor, which makes it kind of hard for when there are serious issues that could run in the family to actually be point, pinpointed to that uh, person because there is no real history. Versus now when we come here and there's more you know, access to care a little bit, um, it's a better understanding, then that's when the, the generation like myself we start taking notes like hey you know grandma and grandpa had these symptoms too maybe they had it you know and we can kind of pinpoint it but knowing um not being able to know the history really has an impact on the health because i may just think also just like them i'm just having a typical uh back pain or you know um typical rash or something like that and it could be something else like uh, me. For example, when I started having my skin issues, it, I never would have thought I had it. You know, so it 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 really impacts because it, you don't always think there's something going
0: on. Thank you so much um, for that, because um, I think we don't we you know we don't often think about that the whole history that some whole history of experience that people are bringing with them right when they come to this country and that's very present uh, in decision making. Health with their health care here. So we know we've learned a little bit now about um, some of the bigger context uh, that people are living with, um, in this case, in the DC, Baltimore, um, Maryland, you know, Northern Virginia area. And we know overall um, that there's an underrepresentation of populations, you know, in clinical research. So the question is that's come up, you know, how does how does a community driven process help? And we'd like to start to address that question by first asking, um, why is it a problem? Why is it a problem? And who is it a problem for when there's underrepresentation representation uh, in research? Um, I wonder if uh, Vicki, maybe I could ask you to start uh, with that.
3: Yes, hi everyone. Um, Thank you, Mary. So I think that um, this is a a large problem that has been occurring for many years. Um, Let me get my thoughts together, I'm sorry. Um, The um, around 8% of um, African-Americans are represented in clinical trials and um, 1% are uh, Hispanics. Um, obviously, this is very low compared to um, uh, Caucasians and there's a, a need to um, get these trials to communities um, so that they can benefit from, from the different um, initiatives that come with clinical trials, such as um, getting the latest therapies. Um, they can have access to innovative treatments. Um, they can also get access to more care if they're part of these trials and um, they, they get more frequent check-ins as well. Um, so NMQF is working with uh, federally qualified health centers to get them um, to become part of uh, the Alliance for Representative Clinical Trials, which is a, a sponsor, multi-sponsored program where we're looking into um, training Uh, Community clinicians to become investigators that way we get these trials to these communities and, in addition to doing the training we're also looking into doing. um, Providing an MQF being a core Center coordinator of. um, As working as a clinical investigative site network, so we can provide support such as um, budgeting contracting um, startup activities. Um, to all these sites.
0: Um, I don't know if that answered that question. Yeah. So I like sort of two parts and then I'm going to put Bishop Carter on notice. I'm coming to you next with a follow up question. Um, well, well, I heard you say two things. Number one, you know, patients are certainly at risk, right? When there's underrepresentation in clinical trials. You've, you've talked about that um, sort of the um, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing people participating. Um, And so they're at risk in terms of their um, access to future care, et cetera, therapies being appropriate for them, uh, for all of us really, et cetera. But but you've also talked about the model of the Alliance for Representative Clinical Trials, which is about putting um, building capacity within community clinics to conduct research, but also bringing the economic benefit more broadly into the community into those clinics itself and um bishop carter you often talked about in our advisory um sessions you know this this balance between how we perceive risk and benefit particularly when it comes to research participation and so i wonder if you would share um, your thoughts with us today
1: yeah Um, our our community have a history uh, being taken advantage of when you think in terms of the Tuskegee syphilis study that occurred with African-American men. They were, ch- they were, um, they were used as, uh, you know, to make it very plain, they were used as experimental subjects and were not treated. Um, that's, that history still lives with us. Um, Henrietta Lacks and of course Um, Again, our church is in close proximity to Johns Hopkins University. And to hear the mothers and fathers of our community, African-American mothers and fathers of our community, talk about how um, the treatment was substandard, although it was a a high-class, world-class hospital. But when it came to us, it was a different kind of case. We are working hard to change that. We're working very hard to change that, but I can tell you those those stories still remain, and those concerns still exist, and that's why I'm in. That's why I'm a part of this because the church is the trusted partner. But to hear Anna talk about eight percent of Americans, um, African Americans being represented, um, the medicine that comes out of these studies are primarily for persons who are Caucasians um, and it doesn't benefit persons of African American as much as we know the DNA piece um, is still not exact, it's still not precise. Our DNA is very different from Caucasians. So I think to answer your question, the, the reason for the lack of participation for experiments, uh, part of it has been um, what has occurred in the past. And we're fighting desperately to try to um, change that, that, that perception.
0: Thank you. And you also have talked about, um, you know, and, and I'll ask maybe Anna to weigh in on this too that, um, you know, when a person is coming into the system, they're thinking about their care in a very holistic way. And so, thinking about research participation, they're also thinking down the line is this something that I'd even have access to if it got approved? Absolutely. Would it be affordable for me if it got approved? So all of that is part of one thought process for a person. Maybe, you, maybe. go ahead Dr. Bishop Carter.
1: You, you're absolutely right. You know, the ownership of our data is very important. I mean, if you want the data, then make us a part of that. And of course we can talk later about the benefits, what that means because, Again, as I make reference to Henrietta Lacks, the data was collected and her family is still fighting for that even right now, generations later. And that kind of thing just should not be. So um, you're absolutely correct. We're strong proponents of, if we participate in in the research, if we participate in the study, then we wanna follow that data from start to finish. And we want to be able to benefit as well from whatever would come out of that.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for bringing up um, the idea of data. I'm gonna go to um, Dr. Lockwood and just, maybe we can just sort of talk about a little bit of the mechanics of things. You're part of an integrated system that has clinical care as well as research um, institutions. How is data, individual level, patient data, how is data collected you know, within the system? And how does it travel throughout the system to um, enable or facilitate someone's participation in in research?
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, It's a great question. And that's something that has become increasingly, um, incredibly important, especially after kind of you know, the horrific examples such as what happened with Henry the Lacks, what happened with the Tuskegee Airmen and a lot of the, the medical research that we have a really ugly history of um, in this country and abroad. And so part, um, a lot of safeguards have been put into place to help protect patient level data when it comes to clinical research studies. And we've created um, what are called Institutional Review Boards or IRBs. And they have, their um, kind of governing institutions at every, at every location where a clinical research trial is done that rigorously reviews the research protocol, and then specifically what will happen with the patient level data. And I should say data is almost, um, almost entirely de-identified, so it cannot be tied back to who the individual person is. And when a patient opts into a clinical trial, they're required to to say what they would and would not allow their their data to be used for. So we hope that safeguards have been put into place after
0: we've learned a lot from from some of these really you know, awful parts of our history. Thank you, and let me ask Anna to follow up on that idea of consent. Um, what are what are patients looking for when? Um, they're thinking about giving consent for the use of their data.
2: When patients look for that, they look for just clarity, being upfront with them, um, being able to have the information from the beginning of the process, and just have them just say, "Hey, this this is the time frame." Um, just be transparent, you know, because that is what's going to build the trust in what has happened in the past. And just moving forward from that, yes, you know, there are bad um, titles to clinical Uh, trials and the word of mouth is a powerful advertisement that keeps going. You know, it, it didn't happen through this generation, but it did happen before. But here we are, we know about it, you know, and we don't have to be a specific population to know about it, but we know that it has happened. So just kind of being, my, my advocacy for this is just being transparent through the process, explaining um, to the patient, hey, this is the, the process of it. Um, this is what you expect to understand. Of course, you know, there are going to be other outliers to it, but just walk with the patient through it. And just make the patient feel comfortable enough that they can be assured that any questions that they have will be answered and, and they can trust in the system and that they have someone to go to if they feel that that is not what is being processed
0: or offered. Let me, I'm gonna stick with you for a 2nd oh, um, Let's just stick with you for a second because we've started this part of the conversation talking about data, which feels as a term, right? Very impersonal. But when we're talking about data, we're also talking about trust, right? Cause collecting data requires trust. And so Anna, you talked about being upfront with the patients at that point of care or at that point of consultation, if it's a clinical research, is it? But who is the person who, or who are the members of the staff who would have that responsibility or who could have that responsibility? Is it just the investigator? And Dr. Lockwood, I'll come to you on that as well. Who Who is the person who's creating that welcoming environment for the patient? I think it's as a team altogether.
2: It's not just a one-person or two-person type of deal. Um, in a clinical setting, um, the patient may not feel comfortable with even the provider itself. But crazy enough, they will feel comfortable with the person at the front desk. And they can share plenty of stories with that person at the front desk that As a team, you can come and huddle together and and, and just kind of get information on the patient. The doctor may not know that the patient is homeless, but the front desk knows that that person is homeless. So if the person is uh, diabetic or um, has hypertension, it's going to impact that because the doctor assumes that the patient is well off, but in reality, they're not. So they're not going to have the access to adequate food, to adequate uh, things that they need to have the outcome that they want. So it's not just one person or two. It's really a clinical setting that your team has to be willing to uh, be part of that, of of a care uh, setting that cares about the patient. Now, if you have people that don't care or, or stuff like that, then it will impact that patient's health. But again, I feel like it's not just tied to one person. It's really a whole Um, setting of the patient to really understand what they're going
0: through at that time. Dr. Megan, could you follow up on that a little bit?
4: Yeah, I think trust is just hugely important when it comes into the physician provider relationship, the patient provider relationship in general, but especially when it comes to clinical research trials. And I think it it exists in so many different spaces, so it becomes a really complicated topic. And I think part of what we we've been talking about with the NMQF and the CTLI is just the access of getting patients to a clinical trial, because mo- the vast majority of patients are not getting their care at a large academic tertiary in- institution um, where their clinical trials are ongoing. And so, how does a patient even get referred? Well you know, you really, you need to have a provider you trust that's referring you. It might, you might also be getting it from a friend or a colleague or a support group who has had a good experience or a trusting relationship. But I think it's so important to also have relationships with providers in the community with primary care practices in particular, because you want, if a a patient has a good trusting relationship with their primary care provider, then, if that provider refers them for a clinical study, they might be more likely to to participate in it or think about participating in it because somebody they trust recommended it to them. I think on the con on the opposite side, there can also be a, a barrier. You know, I think a barrier to clinical recruitment and patient recruitment in clinical trials is that sometimes I think referring providers might worry that if the the trial doesn't go well or if they're assigned to placebo group, for example, that it could affect their patient provider relationship. And so I think there's a lot of different um, crucial pieces to that
0: trust puzzle when it comes to, to patient care and clinical research. Thank you very much. Vicki, I'm going to come to you and ask you what's been our experience working with the um, federally qualified health centers in terms of building trust or, or um, you know, building trust, leveraging trust within the, um, that the FQHCs have with the patient population there when it comes to research. But then Bishop Carter, I'm going to ask you to talk about building trust outside of a clinical setting. Cause at this point, we've just been talking about clinical settings. I'm going to start to ask you, what is the role the community leaders play in building trust in healthcare and healthcare systems, um, outside of a clinical setting. So let me start with Vicki first.
3: Yes. Um, so I, I guess that the best way I can answer this question is with an example that we have. Um, we have a study, the Minority and Rural COVID Insights Study, um, where we implemented um, research study in federally qualified health centers with um the primary investigator being, or the principal investigator being uh, community clinicians. This this has helped us learn how important that relationship is where the clinicians are, or the providers are part of the neighborhoods and there's a trusted voices in in these communities and can help the patients guide them um, to assess the benefits or risks of a study. Um, But there's also um, the fact like that, Anna mentioned that sometimes they might not trust, the patient might not trust the the physician. So what we did in this study was we also implemented a research coordinator. Um, And from our experience, the research um, coordinators have uh, been able to get a lot of information from these patients that are involved in this study that maybe the physicians weren't able to, um, such as... um, For example, we reach out to them on biannual surveys. So we've been able to get information of what patients have um, suffered from COVID or if their family members have passed away and that's information that we're trying to collect for our study. Um, So that relationship um, I think can be in any form, not necessarily just through the the provider, but also with um, the nurses at the, at the sites and um, the research coordinators have become part of the uh, important aspect of this as well.
0: And the coordinators are hired locally, correct? They're not.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so we, we hired coordinators for each site um, and we, we provide funding for them and they are hired through, through the clinics through each Federal-Qualified Health Center.
0: Thank you. Bishop Carter, could you talk about outside of the clinical setting? How do do we build trust and and help people share their concerns and questions and get them answered uh, about research participation?
1: Yeah, um, the church has always been looked upon as the center of attraction for both community and for those who attend. Um, the church is very personal and very support driven. So um, most churches have a, have a thought pattern that speaks to a holistic ministry, not just a one dimensional ministry. And that being the case, uh, just to say it in layman's terms, when persons are in trouble, they run to the church. The same is true as it relates to health. Our church, for example, have what we call a health ministry. And a health ministry is that which provides um, education, provides awareness, and even um, expertise persons who can come and talk about various pieces. So to answer your question, because the church is just a trusted source, people have no problem coming to the church. And so what we try to do, we try to reach out for persons like Dr. Megan and Dr. Vicki to come to our church to share the information. And when they hear it in the church, then that sort of opens the door, if you will, to um, what needs to be done.
0: Thank you. And I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit um, beyond your church, which is based in Baltimore, but also the work you're doing with the Faith Health Alliance. Um, Just if you could help people visualize what what that is and and how that supports what you were just talking about.
1: Right. I'll I'll go back to my church in the sense that we reach two communities. We reach um, those who attend church and those who don't attend church. Okay. We're still a whosoever will, but we are... I, you know, we see our our mission as to serve people. So the Health Faith Alliance allows us to because of relationships, because of relationships, and I've been I've been doing this thing for something like um, thirty five years, if you will, and that has allowed me to connect with persons across the country, east and west, north and south, and even some international relationships but those relationships allow us to connect with other churches and other cities and other states, which have the same mission that I have. And that is to provide support, provide health uh, to persons who are in need. And the Health Faith Alliance has become very intentional about doing that. The most recent thing that we did was the um, uh, um, vaccine, COVID vaccinations Um, here in the state of Maryland, Just to give you an idea, here in the state of Maryland, um, we have a high vaccination rate and the African-American church is the reason for that. Well, that's not only played out in in, um, the state of Maryland, but that's played out in some other states across the country. And the Health Faith Alliance allows us to have that reach into places. I'll end by this. Um, We, because of relationships among the church community, and we're talking about not, I said church, but we're not just talking about church, but this also reaches into probably the faith community. It's probably a little bit better because it's more inclusive of um, various religious practices. It allows us to connect with people and allows us to meet those needs.
0: Thank you. I'm going to take a minute to kind of summarize, hopefully, a little bit of what we've we've talked about um, in terms of the uh, issues that we see now with the lack of representation in clinical trials. But what greater, what a vision that has more community-driven and patient-driven um, um, uh, forums. Um, can mean so we know that um, we heard from um, Anna. One of the attributes of a better system can be around transparency, greater transparency from the point of care, whether it's um, having that initial discussion about a clinical trial participation, um, or or even prior to that, just when you're thinking about the diagnosis, but. Um, people need to have information that allows them to know where they are in the process, whether they're participating in the clinical trial or something else, and then what's expected? what's, what's their results, what's their study results, uh, of the overall results of the study, what to expect by being a member of this group that's participating in a clinical trial. So transparency is one of the attributes. Another attribute that we want, that's the vision for new system is, sharing the economic benefit of clinical research more deeply into the community by supporting community programs like a faith health alliance but also the community clinicians finding a mechanism for community clinicians to participate in research and then share the benefits of um, that research the economic benefits um so i'm looking at my notes because we um, we did uh, prepare for this a little bit. Um, <clears throat> another one Mary, of the attributes, sorry. Yes, there's a question from a participant.
3: I think that um, I see that is directed to me that I think I can answer. Okay,
0: let me come to it just a quick set, second. I just want to finish uh-huh. wrapping up. We've talked about data and people having ownership and agency over their data. So what are the mechanisms that sponsors can be thinking about when they're aware that this is a real primary benefit that uh, participants are looking for. Um, And I think the involvement, as we talked about, of trusted community leaders. So these are the attributes that we're trying to build in to um, this new system through a mechanism like the clinical trial learning communities. So we'll describe what the aspects of those communities are in a minute, but let's now go to um, the question and I will say to everyone, now's a good time to start putting your questions into the Q&A and so we'll go to that as well. Um, so for Dr. Vicky, yeah. we sometimes hear that FQHCs are understaffed and unable to engage their physicians in clinical trial participation. What are the best practices that can be put in place or what barriers can be broken down to facilitate clinical research as a care option at FQHCs and free charitable clinics?
3: Yes, so this is a very important question that um, I got so excited that I wanted to answer because that NMQF, um, we're trying to provide more support to these sites that are already um, overburdened with administrative tasks and um, just their clinical work is um, already burden, burdensome, especially now with COVID. So the way NMQF is doing this is, um, setting up as a clinical investigative site network we were trying to provide uh, the sites with the support that they need for example um, placing a research coordinator at these sites or that that can help do all research related tasks um, and also um, we can help them with the contracting when talking to sponsors, um, so they don't have to be heavily involved with budgeting and things like that. Um, so there's different things that can be done. And at NMQF, we're, through the Alliance, we're, we're trying to um, empower um, the community clinicians so that um, they get more involved in these trials.
0: Thank you. There are a few more questions in here. Um, One question is, how do you reach people who are not aligned with a faith organization? So I can start uh, on that one. Um, So Faith Health Alliance is one uh, network that we work very closely with, with Bishop Carter, but we also have another um, alliance that we work with called the Hair Wellness Warriors, and that's out of the University of um, Maryland's public health, School of Public Health. And that's building a network across the country of barbershops and hairstylists who are becoming community health workers and making the barbershop and hair salon a hub for information sharing uh, about uh, different aspects of healthcare and also um, a place to get some things done like blood pressure readings or, or things like that. So really building out that hub as a, a community health hub. Um, another network that we're building is with um, an organization in Northern Virginia called NovaScripts Central, which is the community pharmacist ambassadors. And that's recognizing, I think, to Anna's point, you know, at the very beginning, uh, some people, sort of culturally or just through matter of preference, start with their pharmacist uh, in in many cases to get information. And what we've also found through our uh, advisory for the um, clinical trials learning community is that the pharmacist is kind of really one of the only providers who has a full view of all of the different medications that a particular patient is on and is the point of consultation there about various potential interactions, et cetera, between the drugs. So those are some of the different community-oriented networks that we're partnering with to help um, um, reach uh, reach more people, and not just in terms of outreach, but also to learn from them what what is important to you, what matters to you, what is part of your decision-making when it comes to healthcare. Um, Dr. Lockwood, I see you nodding your head, so I wonder if there's anything you would add just based on the Georgetown MedStar experience. Are there other community organizations that um, you've seen partnered with in your area? You
4: know, I think it's been a real challenge over the past few years because of COVID. Almost all clinical research really came to a halt. And I think a lot of the relationships that were that were built with really important members of the community um, really shifted because the, of the changing needs in the setting of the pandemic and and people's responsibilities at the hospitals changing and you know so many of our clinical trials involve medicines that weaken immune systems so those are those are thought to be pretty unsafe to to be pursuing in the era of covid right now but i think we're we're trying to you know rebuild those relationships and i think that the, the lupus foundation and the lupus research alliance in particular um has been working on some exciting projects and if there's project change which is really being led by the director of health equity at the lupus research association is really doing trying to incorporate a lot of i think the core principles that you guys have really spoke about today you know collaborating not just with hospitals and healthcare providers but with community faith-based organizations grassroots organizations community leaders women's health groups really trying to to increase relationships in the community, build
0: build trust in the community and be able to dispense that information. Thank you. Um, There's another question in here. And so Dr. Lockwood, I might ask you to follow up a little bit with me on this one, but how prevalent is lupus in the Latinx um, population? And I'll I'll ask you to weigh in. Um, So I'll start though. NMQF, we invest in Medicare and Medicaid data. So we can see uh, for lupus and with our partner, the um, uh, Lupus Research Alliance, we also have another partner who's looking at this through the clinical trials, um, through their own clinical trials, which is uh, Biogen, who I should have announced earlier is is our sponsor for this initial demonstration um, project of the clinical trials learning community. So thanks for that. Question is how prevalent is lupus in the Latinx population? So what we're able to see when we look at the Medicare data, and I'm just gonna toggle for a second back to my reference table. Um, so give me a second to do that. So we're seeing in the Medicare population for the Latinx population in the um, DC, you know, Maryland and Virginia um, geographies, we're seeing that it's around um, two, three percent you know, of the population, and that's in Medicare. Um, But when you look at Medicaid, that goes up a little bit to more like um, 5% or so. So that's what we're seeing in those two populations. But of course, both, you know, we're not getting the full, you know, age range and full um, socioeconomic range of patients there. So I wonder, um, Anna, just from your own sort of personal experience, how prevalent would you say lupus is in the community, you know, in the, in the Latinx community, just in your immediate kind of network, do people experience it? What do they talk about with lupus? So I
2: will say that it's going up um, because right now, uh, taking the initiative to actually get tested, going out to get uh, evaluated by providers is a big one. Um, Lupus is one of them things. It's almost like um, mental health. A lot of people don't want to accept that they have this issue, but they do. Um, so the more educated patients become, or you know, we encourage our family members or community to go out and get tested, or if you see certain symptoms that can associate you know, that can say, hey, I, I think you should get checked out for this can definitely impact those numbers. But right now, because it's not too many people um, accepting that these are the cases that's happening. It's why I believe that a lot of those numbers are low. It may necessarily, you know, it's just, like I said, the the community um, involvement will impact that as, we, as time goes on, because the encouragement that they will get, to say, hey, go get that checked out. It's not just just regular things that you experience on an everyday you know, uh, way, but the more we push for that, we will see those numbers. But again, it, it plays with us a very strong part that we have to start promoting this, that we have to encourage,
0: especially women, to get checked out. Bishop Carter, I wonder, are you? If you could weigh in on that as well, in terms of how do you see lupus discussed within the um, faith community? That you well, serve.
1: Well, it's still a dreaded disease. It's still a disease that people fear, and you know I don't want to be I don't want to belabor the point, but resources are just simply not available in terms of medical care, in terms of physician support, that kind of thing. Um, we live with it, um, and I'm being, you know, I'm being very direct here. I see persons each week, and I'm not asking them how are they doing because I already know how they're doing, but I'm asking them how, how are you managing your pain? And we want to get to a place where we can begin to at least get help because um, persons are feeling like going to the emergency room is not help. Um, you know, going to critical care is not help people need long-term support. So, um, I don't know if I answered your question. I know I got caught up in, in what I, what is a reality for me, but, um, we've got to do something about this. We've got to, we got to help persons to know that there are physicians that they can see, and it's not going to take six months to get a person to diagnose your case, et cetera.
0: And. Dr. Lockwood, maybe you could weigh in on that. I know I keep going back between calling you Megan and Dr. Megan and Dr. Lockwood. so <laughs> All good, I hope. But um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, sort of that journey to diagnosis. And what are you seeing in terms of the demographics of the patient populations that uh, come to you?
4: Yeah. You know, lupus is a disease that just disproportionately affects minority populations.
1: Absolutely
4: much more common among Blacks, Asian, Hispanic, Latinas, American Indian, and Alaska Alaska Native women compared to white women. And, you know, the vast majority, over 90% of patients living with lupus are women, but men are also diagnosed with lupus and they can actually experience symptoms much more severely. And Part of the reason this is so important is because, you know, African American and Hispanic Latino women are diagnosed with lupus at a younger age, have much more severe symptoms and somehow and respond to certain medications differently and Black people living with lupus have higher rates of death, and they die at a younger age compared to white women that live with the exact same disease. And I think this comes back to why diversity in clinical trials is so important, because we need to have studies that are generalizable to the diversity of people living with lupus. If 75% of clinical trial participants are white, but you know, less than 50% or less than 25% of the people living with the disease are not white, then what we learn from the clinical studies is not necessarily going to apply to the patient that's in front of you. And, you know, low minority participation in lupus trials, it results in a lack of data on effectiveness, on safety, on side effects in the populations that have the highest mortality rates and the highest morbidity rates of the disease. It's a huge, huge problem to speak specifically to kind of the prevalence of lupus in different populations. There have been a few different observational studies in California and Minnesota and in Georgia that have tried to estimate the prevalence. It's, I think like like, like Anna, and, um, shared, you know, it's, it's rising significantly. We know that the prevalence is estimated in whites to be around 50 per 100,000 people per year. In, in black patients, it's closer to 130 per 100,000 patients per year. And for for Asians and his um, Latinx, it's, it's estimated to be closer to about 80 per 100,000 person per year. So almost twice as prevalent in um, non-Caucasian populations than compared to Caucasians. And I think we probably overestimate how many Caucasians have with this.
0: Thank you um, very much. So we've only got a few minutes left and there. We did get a question about scalability and I wanna describe um, our approach with the clinical trials learning community thinking about you know the, the aspects of the vision, the transparency, the outreach into the community where the inclusion of um, clinical and non-clinical um, community leaders. So our model is that we come into a geographic area and we're thinking about a particular disease state. So our demonstration project is lupus in this DC, Maryland and Virginia, Northern Virginia um, geography. And then we build uh, an advisory board which is not uncommon right we're used to building advisory boards but i think one of the different elements of uh, this concept is that our advisors are not just advisors but they're advisor champions so they're helping us to kind of apply some of the principles of community engagement particularly this know your community principle and so our advisors like Anna and bishop carter dr megan say Here's what's happening right now in this community. Here's all of the conditions people are living with and the things that they need. And then they say, here's some of the things that are needed to improve the quality of care from the clinician side, as well as here's um, what's needed from the community engagement side. So it's the advisor champions that start to set the priorities for what the deliverables coming out of the community will be and one of the deliverables is a quality improvement and education toolkit for clinicians that can help clinicians have that clinicians and other staff, right? To Anna's earlier point, clinicians and other staff have a conversation with people in the practice. But the champion part of it is we need a health system, you know, advisor who's part of this group that says, we're part of co-creating this. We do an assessment of our practice. This is the quality improvement effort that we think will help us have greater participation among our patients in clinical trials. And then we're gonna implement that quality improvement initiative and measure that. So it's this idea that advisors are not kind of separate from the improvement and the implementation itself. And then, so that's sort of the clinical aspect of the model. And then the community aspect of the model is working with the Faith Health Alliance and the Hair Wellness Warriors and the community pharmacy ambassadors. Again, do an assessment of what is needed in this congregation or this set of congregations or this community that we serve. And let's design the intervention and then let's implement the intervention and measure the intervention so that the intervention itself isn't coming from outside, but from within the community and and co-created with our advisor champions and co-implemented with our advisor champions. And then everyone in every clinical trial learning community can start to share some of the resources that um, come out of that. So when we think about scalability, we hope to see these geographic specific um, learning communities around the country but we're able to support them by having this common set of resources that we're building that everyone can access. Similar to the way Bishop Carter talked about the Faith Health Alliance growing its um, participating um, uh, congregations, um, but from the same common set of resources and approaches. And maybe Bishop Carter, you could expand on what scalability looks like for the Faith Health Alliance too.
1: Yeah, we are, um, because we did so well with the COVID vaccinations across the country, we're just excited in that we can, um, we can expand that to other health concerns. Um, I just recently read somewhere, I forget the source, but I've recently read where African Americans are more vaccinated than whites. Now that has never occurred but through the Black church and through collaboration, through the Health Faith Alliance, we were able to um, reach that milestone. Well, if we can do that with COVID, we can do that with lupus, we can do that with hypertension, diabetes and on so, and so forth. So we are excited about that and we are growing, um, I won't say daily, but monthly churches are coming in because churches and faith institutions are hearing about the success that we're having. Just recently we, um, we um, added to our uh, list of faith institutions um, a Hispanic congregation, um, Roman Catholic Hispanic congregation, and that congregation is something like 15,000. So it really gives us a great reach and we are looking forward to doing greater things for the future.
0: Thank you very much, Bishop Carter. I'm gonna let you be the almost last word. We do have a quick poll that um, we'd like to ask folks to take because we've only just touched the surface. And if you'd like more information and like to continue the conversation, um, please answer the poll here. Um, and then while you're doing that, a couple of announcements uh, have, or at least one announcement has come. Uh, specifically related to lupus. so lupus Foundation of America in the DMV, so DC Maryland, Virginia area is having a webinar on lupus saturday july twenty third ten to eleven fifteen. It's open to all. So you can look that up I imagine on the uh, LFA's website july twenty third, Saturday ten to eleven fifteen. Um, and then we did get a question coming in for requests for rare disease clinical trials, inherited retinal um, diseases, and more education being needed to elevate awareness and access. I will say NMQF does have an ophthalmology uh, index. So uh, Thais, it looks like you, um, if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, we'll put some links now in the, in the chat so that we can talk to you about that further. Um, So let's see, is anyone doing the the poll? I don't see any responses yet. I'm not sure if I get to see that or um, Keiko, can you see the um, responses and then we can wrap up. All right, so it looks like a fair number of you would like to have some more information. Um, And so there are links in the chat. We wanna thank you for that for your responses. Thank you for your participation today. There are many, many messages, so we'll save the chat and get to the additional questions. Uh, appreciate all the links that folks have put in there, but please reach out to us to, uh, for more information and to continue the conversation. Have a nice weekend, everybody.